Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. The amount of power that is concentrated among the channel players today is very different than it was in 2005. We remember some of the builders being able to push their weight around pretty strongly, demanding the channels kind of bend to their whims. Um, we're seeing if remodeling grows, who gains the pro contractor will be the what we believe the one who commands, you know, market share changes between some of the brands, perhaps, you know, pretty big differences between margins. That's the piece to watch, we think. My guest today is Todd Tomalek, principal and head of research for Zonda. Todd joins us with 25 years of experience in the industry, having worked for other building product manufacturers like Kohler, as well as other research firms advising uh, customers and analyzing the market. Todd's an incredibly insightful, thoughtful, and smart person in our industry. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. We're going to start with uh, a significant dive into the remodel market, R&R, which will then follow up with his thoughts on new construction market, including single family, multifamily, and single family for rent. And where are we at now and what's in store for the coming year and years? We'll also touch on the credit markets. Todd will give us some insights and things to think about there as well. All in all, it's a wide ranging discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. Todd Tomalek, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Alan. Excited to be with you. Hey, I'm excited as well. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think, um, you know, if, if folks don't know who you are, we'll, we'll let you give a little bit of background here on yourself in just a minute. But, um, you know, from my perspective, you're one of the more interesting folks in the industry. When you speak, I know I always listen in, lean in, listen hard, and you get me thinking about things I normally wouldn't be thinking about. So um, really insightful, really thoughtful work that I think you do. And I think folks are really going to enjoy this um, this conversation. Well, thank you, Alan. What um, if folks don't know you? I know you had a, a you spent some time with early in your career with a building products manufacturer with Kohler Company. You've uh, since gotten into um, uh, working with you know folks advising the industry, um, uh, analyst services, and market research, and so forth. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Todd. I, I've been around housing and building products. For about 20 years, uh, I came into the industry before the financial crisis. Uh, I was with Kohler Company and their economics group. Uh, that was just a fantastic experience right at the beginning of the financial crisis was there. So uh, I've had the, the you know interesting experience of having touched M&A, having touched new product development, uh, having spent a whole lot of time getting alignment with senior leadership around uh, how to think about starts and remodeling. And, and most of my career has been spent around uh, finding better ways to measure and predict either housing or building products or home improvement. And so that's essentially what I what I do right now. I'm at Zonda. I lead our building products group, which includes all of our kind of thought and perspective around the building product sector, around remodeling and home improvement. And we spend a whole bunch of time uh, basically identifying what we think is the most important pieces of nuggets to think about for forecasting in the future and understanding like what part of the, what part of the industry is shaking and by how much and then how to measure it. And if it's important, we're in a part of the industry that's really poorly measured, we we, we try to fix that. And so we, we plug into the research teams of building product companies for finance and strategy and marketing, as well as a lot of the investors. But that's that's where I fit in. I spent some time in uh, advisory and consulting and building products too for some of the other larger uh, housing research firms and uh, have come over to Zonda recently, but uh, love the space and I love the questions that we face in the space. Yeah, that's great. I know you're a Green Bay Packers fan. Are you able to apply any of this to how they're going to do? What, what's no, your it's, prognosis? Yeah, there? Yeah. We we all are limited in our ability to forecast many things. <laughs> so so I, I actually took the leap. I have not purchased a jersey in over 25 years. And I took the leap on a Jordan Love jersey this year. And I'm feeling like it was a pretty risky purchase, but I still have hope. So we'll we'll see how things go the rest of this year. But they're they're roughly as difficult to forecast as each other. So we'll do our best. Right. Okay, great. So let's jump into it. I want to talk to you about uh, remodeling, uh, maybe single family, new construction, maybe touch on multifamily, single family for rent. 
And, um, and, and then I, when we talked previously, we'd done a little bit on maybe some what's happening in the credit markets. I think that's always an area that maybe some of the, the listeners may not uh, be so familiar with, but and let's start with remodeling. You've been doing a lot of thinking lately on the remodel market. And uh, I would just say, you know, I'll steal your thunder in terms of a headline is you, you believe we're entering a golden age of remodeling, but we have to navigate some choppy waters here in the, in the near term. Is that right? Like what, so if I got that right, what, what leads you to that, um, to that position? What are you seeing out there? I know it's a broad question, but you know, start where you want to. So for, if we're thinking about the remodeling industry, uh, industry participants, we believe, should be thinking about a really volatile first half of 2024. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, uh, what we saw happen the last few years was if we think of like middle income America, uh, did a whole bunch of excess home improvement spending. Uh, we do think there was some pull forward that happened there uh, under a really specific cohort. And a lot of that was credit fueled. Uh, and, 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 and we can talk about this a little bit later, but a lot of those credit issues are creeping up and, and coming into fruition now. So that's unwinding, we believe. And it's going to continue to unwind until about the middle of next year. Uh, after that, though, we, we really think that the industry should be thinking about a higher overall level of home improvement spending per household for, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, if we go up the income spectrum a little bit, up the wealth spectrum, there's uh, a whole lot of evidence in our data that deferral, deferral, deferral has happened. And uh, we think that the how the industry has been measuring home improvement spending has generally undercounted the cost from an, like an inflationary standpoint. So if you think about like remodeling spending per square foot, uh, we think we're underspending and we've been underspending for about the last seven years. And what happened in 2021 and 2022, you know, was essentially a normal level of spending at higher cost. And so we have not caught ourselves up. Uh, that's going to bounce, we think, in 2025. And the, the industry should be thinking about, you know, as you said, a golden age of remodeling with double digit growth, likely for 2025 and 2026. Um, Think of like like throwing a golf ball at the ground. That's how the the bounce between the first half of next year and the following year could could feel, which obviously is very difficult to navigate, but it's absolutely showing up in the data now. So we think it's an exciting time for building products. Yeah, and um, wow, yeah, a lot to unpack there. Do you? And when we talk remodel, are you you're painting broadly in terms of you know DIY, uh, maybe medium sized projects and large projects, or how do you? How do you think, do you just think about them broadly and then maybe by exception, talk about each of those categories or segments? Yeah, the, the way we approach the space is essentially through three lenses. So we think about it, first of all, by the scale of the project. So small maintenance and repair and kind of your, that would be like below $2,000 and then your mid-range remodels, which would essentially be below say $30,000. Uh, and, and, and the story for both of those categories is that the more exposure they have to DIY and lower income, um, the more pain they're going to see over the first half of this this next year, which is happening Makes right sense. now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the, the, the second way that we think about uh, remodeling is by the individual product category level, which really is where some of the exciting differences between we we think the setup that we're coming into in twenty twenty five and twenty twenty four is unusual in the sense of usually these remodeling categories, you know, that that are not that similar tend to model pretty similar, like like roofing and interior remodels have nothing to do with each other, but they but they historically actually, you know, cycled pretty similar up until like 2010. We think that linkage is broken and there's really different stories between some of the product categories. Certain categories have almost no pull forward and a whole lot of deferral. I'll pick on like say bathroom, bathroom remodels. Underrated, we think, in our view. Uh, I think outdoor pavers, underrated, in our view. And there's a whole bunch of other categories that have experienced um, pretty unusual, like structural housing stock changes that have not yet flowed to remodeling that's going to happen, uh, say, over the next five years. So, uh, yeah, we, th we think about it three ways. Industry, price point, uh, and then also uh, channel and uh, in, in product. Uh, really interesting stories beginning to, un to unwind. Yeah, so how about... Um... And so uh, housing age obviously is in there, right? And you, you talk, maybe there's a bump coming in terms of all these homes that were built pre run up to the great financial recession. They're now going to approach 20 years old or approaching 20 years old. That'll let, be let, a let me, start of a remodel bump. Let me, let me, let me put a question back to you, Alan. Um, do you think your listeners or even yourself, if you had to score the quality of the homes that were built, say in the late nineties or early two thousands, Better quality, higher quality, more durable, less durable. What's your sense? Yeah, my sense is less durable, 
put up faster, responding to crazy demand, crazy financing. So probably probably as much or more in need of remodel than anything that may have been built. So we will have in the next two years, almost 20% growth in the number of single family homes that are kind of entering that window where they should be remodeled. And that's under historical norms. And it's hard to put numbers on these things, but as you kind of alluded to, these are higher square footage units, probably built with a little bit more questionable materials, pretty worn out already. And, and so when, when the industry talks about pull forward, uh, I've heard a lot of analysts talk about like pull forward in the broader industry uh, it's a 2021 and 2022. We think the way they're measuring it is wrong because when you start looking at it in terms of like occupied square footage and how much you have to actually spend to bring that square footage up to date, uh, depending on how you estimate costs, you get really different answers. And so our view is basically that core of like occupied square footage. A lot of those homes that were built in the late 90s and early 2000s, which require higher cost in general, are going to have to have to update. And um, uh, most of the interior categories have not experienced almost any pull forward. You've had some outside the home, but the pull forward that has happened has been isolated to this very narrow middle income group that was credit fueled. The rest of the market, especially more expensive luxury products, we think that could bounce very rapidly, you know, say the beginning of this next year, but that's all kind of pig in the Python. It's, it's coming uh, yet ahead it has not happened. And how does, you know, the big, um, Obviously, the big change here recently is is uh, interest rates. How does this lock in effect these folks that are, um, you know, have low interest rates on their mortgages? So and that can affect new construction. I understand, but how does that affect uh, remodel? Because remodel is driven in part by those who move, or those who have been in their house a long time and need repair. So how how does the how does the mortgage rates affect the amount or what's happening in remodel? So the image I would have your listeners imagine, imagine holding a beach ball underwater, right? So it's underwater, it can go negative for a time, but there is this underlying backdrop of, we think um, a matching problem, and we can maybe talk about existing home sales in a little bit, but uh, if you think back to people who purchased homes, say 2020, 2021, but even some of the years before, there was this underlying issue of thinner and thinner for sale inventory among the existing home sales. Uh, and uh, that that inherently causes a matching problem. You buy a home, we've all seen photos of this, you buy a home and uh, you, you go home shopping on a Friday and there's 30 other potential home buyers that are shopping at the same time. This was this was two years ago. And uh, on Sunday, the, the the person who's selling the home gets to choose among you know a litany of offers, and they choose the one that they like the most. And maybe in some of those offers, uh, you know, you're, you're waiving inspections, and you don't really like the school district, and you really don't like you know the configuration of the home. But now you bought that home at three percent mortgage rates, and today we're at you know six and a half to seven or more, and you're stuck. It's very difficult for you to move. And if you do try to move, you've got two years of home price appreciation on top of it with a higher payment. And the odds of you finding a home that's actually fixed all those problems without having to sink more money in it is really, really hard. So we think what's going to happen, um, this is already showing up in some of the data, you know, that, that it's right in front of our noses, holding a beach ball underwater looks a lot like the New York Fed data of uh, the percentage of uh, people. If we look at like 10 year expectations, people planning on moving within the next two years, as soon as they possibly can, uh, that has doubled since 2021. Wow. doubled. And we've seen home sales drop, which means that people are still stuck in their homes. We've got some data around uh, home satisfaction. It's really, really poor among people who purchased their home recently because they're stuck. So all that tends to fester and uh, that tends to be postponed. Even if rates remain high, that issue will still fester. We think it'll eat from other parts of the consumer spending. So we think housing will gain share of overall PCE if you pay attention to Home Depot and Lowe's, that's how they they measured themselves. Uh, we think that's absolutely a, a structural shift that's happening, um, you know, underlie, underneath the underlying data. And that's really interesting. Um, it, and then you talk about this remodel group, or sorry, sorry, the, um, the the middle income group doing remodeling. You say there's some credit risk with them or some pullback within that demographic, and that that may temper things in the near term anyway. So there's all sorts of credit risk that we should talk about, but we think we understand where it's at. And we're and I'll caveat this by saying we're watching this really closely. So we're going to continue to learn, um, you know, as as the next six months develop, uh, exactly where where some of these pockets and holes, you know, proceed to. But you know, there's basically two stories on the credit side. So 
first of all, there was an excellent paper published by the St. Louis Fed, which which I is one of my favorite Federal Reserve banks because they tend to publish the most kind of you know fringe-worthy research. Um, <laughs> they, they, they touch things that I don't know that the other Federal Reserve banks would necessarily put out there. Don't if any of them are listening, I think highly of you all. But uh, <laughs> there's a, a point put out this March, which I think is really important. Essentially, if we look at credit card defaults, um, and you, you think about where credit markets are experiencing stress right now, autos, which have historically correlated with housing for a long time, for decades, until like most recently, uh, autos experiencing credit issues, credit card defaults. Um, the story with credit card defaults that you need to think about is that credit card defaults should be normally predicted by credit scores. Worse credit scores means more worse credit card defaults. Yep, so what... What the St. Louis Fed raised their hand on was they essentially said, look, like, so, so if we look at how bad some of the credit card defaults are, when you adjust for credit score, some of these kind of newly improved credit scores uh, are defaulting at a way worse rate than what the math says they should be. And, and what, what, what we think is happening, what the Fed says that they, they believe is happening too, is that if you take a group of people and you you give them cash and they stay at home during the pandemic, they will pay their bills. And just the math of it is that their credit score is improved, but it doesn't mean that all the underlying you know issues that related to the reason they had a poor credit score to begin with and they were likely to default have changed. Hmm. So we had this issue where there's near-term improvement in a whole bunch of credit scores because we we gave a lot of households incremental cash while they were in during the pandemic and their credit scores improved. But now, and we think some of that was this middle income remodeling spending. They spent on their homes, they spent on improving the backyards, um, but now that is beginning to unwind. And their excess savings is already gone, which was kind of buffering us for the last 18 months from what should have been already decline uh, due to, to declining real incomes. That's gone. So coming into 2024, the first half is really this credit unwind among, call it middle America, who got a little bit more stretched. The other credit story that I'll, I'll, I'll mention and maybe there's two other ones, but the other one that you need to, to be aware of is that if you look at data around, uh, say, home equity extraction, now we don't think there's any much any amount of home equity extraction that is anywhere near what happened during the kind of pre-financial crisis levels. However, however, uh, if you look at just the dollars that's changed in the last year, it's really expensive to tap your home equity line at this point versus say two years ago, just because the cost of uh, pulling out that mortgage, the average ticket of home equity that's been extracted has jumped from about 50 to $70,000 up to $100,000. And the average credit score has declined uh, by almost 40 to 50 points, well below kind of the 740 plus credit bucket. It's below that now. Actually looks a lot like an aggregate, the mean is uh, more close to where we were, you know, kind of 2005. Um, no, there's no, there's nowhere near the same amount of dollars that have been extracted as what there were before the financial crisis. So we don't think there's the same systemic risk. Yeah. But the yeah. issue does remain that we have a bunch of remodels that were funded, say, since mid-2022, that were basically home equity funded by people who are really should not have tapped that equity. They were lower income and they're taking it at a really expensive time that's beginning to unwind right now. And so we think the industry has not yet fully, you know, digested that little nugget that's going to hit over the next six months. The good news is if you go up, you know, if you look up the income spectrum and up the credit score spectrum a little bit more, uh, the homeowners who have the most equity uh, generally have not pulled out their cash at the higher income group. And they, they've, we think under-indexed the amount of home improvement spending they're doing, that's all deferral. So that's going to hit later on next year, but you're going to see two very different stories develop. It'll, it'll turn out by looking you know, really different parts of the PNL. Certain parts of the business will be growing, you know, much faster than others. Certain parts will have pricing power. Big differences between channels. All of that we think will begin to unwind in 2024. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. I want to go back a minute. Um, just change subjects a little bit or change focus. You had mentioned the channel. Do we, do you see big box gaining share of the? Well, let me let me before I go there. So the the large projects and the medium sized projects. Are primarily contractor pro um, uh, executed, right? That you need a pro professional contractor to do those. The, the maintenance smaller can be DIY, can be pro, I would imagine. And so, do you see the big box gaining share of the pros? And if so, is that going to stick? Or and who are they gaining the share from? So we think this is an important point. 
you have to think about the setup coming into 2023. So big box gained a whole lot of share among that pretty tight pro base in 2021 and 2022, just because their, their procurement departments were so excellent in what they do. So there was times when nobody could buy windows, but you could get one through big box. And they, we know that big box captured a lot of incremental pro share, uh, you know, those two years, the story that we sent out to clients and we have, you know, in our research rotation, one of the months of research, once a quarter, focuses just on channel shifts. And one, one of the, 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 the stories that we really saw emerge in 2023 was we, especially in the first half of this year, we saw a lot of the big box, despite kind of what they published, we believe, according, we have about 5 million pro trade pros that uh, are part of kind of the Zonda ecosystem that we're able to survey and measure and see what's happening within their business. And, and from what we were able to perceive, a lot of those who had shifted over to big box during 2020 and 2021 uh, moved back, moved back to the, some of the traditional pro channels. Hmm. Now, that's what happened last year. Coming into 2024, we think that the big box retailers have kind of eaten that big, that, that eaten that frog, so to speak, like they've taken their share loss. They are absolutely doubling down if we read any of their IR materials, uh, yeah. we see how they're investing. Um, from what we can tell in our independent field work, the professionals who have shifted away from big box are still reading the app, still looking at the app, sometimes on a daily basis when they're comparing prices, comparing products. So, you know, if you think about how we expect 2024 and 2025 to play out, it basically is a big bounce. The market's going to drop pretty rapidly in the first half of this next year. And then we could see a really substantial, you know, double digit wave of increase. When that happens, we think the big box retailers are really well positioned to maybe recapture some of that share and maybe even grow it. So um, it, it could be a pretty interesting backdrop. Uh, for sure, channels have gained, have gained relative power within kind of the ecosystem, we think, versus say, the prior 15 years. So the, the way that plays out, these channels that have more pro exposure, are going to have more pricing power. They're going to have more kind of veto power over products. It's going to change the whole dynamic. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to go there next and ask you to put on your put on your forecasting hat and think and and what would be your guidance or uh, uh, advice, if you will, to building product manufacturers and who where's the pricing power with respect to remodel now? Where's that fall over the next six months, year, and then and then further out? Well, let, let's let's expand it beyond just remodel. But let's talk about pricing power. Um, so there are a few things that are changing today that we think are likely to be fairly permanent changes. So one of them is uh, if you think about stickiness, products and brands that have a high degree of brand stickiness among the pro. And this is something that we measure, we track in our, in our, in our research, uh, who regardless of which channel they go to, are still likely to retain some of their, you know, their, their overall share. They're going to have, we think, significantly, perhaps, perhaps like 200 to 300 basis points of better pricing power coming into 2024. That's an important number. Mm -hmm. um, where we worry a little bit more is some of these brands that creeped up, say, in 2021. And uh, really, if you think about launching any product in 2021, the whole playbook you could throw out. You didn't have to really build any, you know, any okay, brand awareness. You could price it however you wanted. Availability could be, as long as you had product, uh, yeah. someone would try it. Those are very much up in the air. And so, you know, our sense is that uh, there's about $8 billion at play of kind of frictional market share changes between brands. That's just going to happen as pros change where they shop, which channels they go to. And uh, we're really going to see the rubber meet the road from the brand standpoint on which ones actually have some stickiness and which ones are in the right channel. But we think there's about $8 billion at play. And we're, we're tracking it pretty closely in the first half of this next year. We're going to be covering that in our brand our brand ratings in the first half of this year. We have a guy uh, named Matt Sampson who's on my team. who's He's been in the industry 25 years. Uh, and this, this is all where he's spending his time, is understanding who will who, who is best positioned and worst positioned because it's going to ultimately become a margin issue. Yeah, right. Um, before we pivot to new construction, anything else on remodel that we haven't touched on that's really, really interesting stuff to think about? Did we miss anything? Anything you? I, I think. I think. I think what the industry needs to remember, and and I, I feel like this this gets lost in the weeds, that the scale. It, I, I hear a lot of comments around supply chains are fixed, 
you know, like like the prices that we have today are kind of where there's this feeling that the prices where we have today and the costs where we have today and the margins where we have today are pretty much where they'll be next year and the year after. Um, what you should be thinking about or what the industry should be thinking about is if if our analysis is correct and we think it's fundamentally correct for, for many, many structural reasons, if we see double-digit growth in remodeling in 2025, the scale of remodeling is so big and kind of the the pool of pro contractors is so constrained and the supply chains are not as fixed as what people perceive that it really brings us back to the feeling we think of what happened in kind of late 2020, early 2021, where pricing really and margins are all over the board. And so, so is availability. So if you believe that that surge in remodeling is going to happen, it's also going to cascade into meaningful differences competitively on the new construction segment, you know, on um, non-residential, all these other categories. So the implications are really big. Yeah, interesting. Interesting to think about that. Let's uh, let's shift to new construction if we could. Um, you know, it, it, crazy times in new construction, right? Interest rates are high, though the Fed has signaled, uh, paused recently, maybe signaling some decreases in interest rates next year. I believe we've seen mortgage rates at or below 7% for the first time in a while here. Big builders buying down mortgages to keep sales going. Um, builders taking share of a percent of, of sales versus existing home market. Um, I, I guess, you know, my question generally is like, where are we? And then we can talk about where are we going? What What is going on in new construction? And, and let's talk single family, I guess, first. Okay. So that holding a beach ball underwater story we think where it's manifesting itself has been new single family construction. How is it possible that mortgage rates can jump as explosively as they did? And yet we see builders do as well as they have, yeah, right? Yeah. E even with like the modest buy downs that they've done in rate, which does matter, but boy, we've seen the volumes of builders do so much better than any type of, you know, there, there's an elasticity analysis from the nineties that Harvard did that looks at all these different industries. And if you raise cost by you know, 10, 20, 30%, how much should sales decline? And the thumb rule for owner-occupied housing from this analysis was that uh, a 1% increase in the cost for owner-occupied housing should cause about a 1.2% reduction in consumption. So we saw payment cost increase by 40 to 50%. Yeah, We saw home sales do really well, starts do really well, considering that sensitivity. So I think what, what we really have there is that, you know, that pent up postponed moves, that issue of holding a beach ball underwater, the only place those transactions could manifest themselves were on the new side. And the builders could give you a little bit more advantage on a slightly lower rate and they could bring, you know, incremental capacity to bear. So um, the, the what we see setting up into 2025, we just published our forecast on this, uh, is positive single family uh, starts growth, we think about 930,000, which is pretty middle of the pack for single family starts next year. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll make this comment, our overall start single family and multifamily is about 9% decline over overall. But we yeah, think yeah. we're going to see 3%. You know, if you're a manufacturer, building product manufacturer selling into new construction, that part of your business will grow by 3% if you're just maintaining share. So you're going to see a lot of BP companies due to timing, you know, due to the timing of when installs happen and due to that single family, multifamily mix, maybe even think they're gaining share. It's really just a timing thing, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's a much better backdrop than it could be. If rates go lower, the risk is to the upside on the single family side. And uh, obviously multifamily is an entirely different animal, but um, that's, that's where we're at. Right. Are there any, um, I know we talked before a little bit, can you walk us through any historical comparisons? What, is this similar to the 70s going into the 80s, high interest rates? Um, I know you, you've looked at some other time periods. What are your thoughts on how we should be thinking about it historically? So interest rates have doubled, which we saw in the, the 70s and 80s too, although that was a much higher overall point that we reached. You know, what, what I think we learn is that there's really only two periods that we have in, you know, the last 150 years that we can point to where you've had uh, uh, any type of interest rate policy that was actively trying to fight inflation. And a lot of it has to do with when the Fed was formed. The Fed was formed in 1914. Uh, the very first period that we, th we think actually is pretty similar to what we saw, say, post-2020, 
although there's plenty of other differences, was uh, that first World, World War I period, 1918 to 2023. And, and the reason that's interesting for us to think about, uh, so GDP wasn't measured the same way. They didn't measure CPI the same way. They didn't even talk about the economy the same way. But that's the only period that we have in modern record where there was this perception of an underlying housing undersupply. Uh, at the time, they believed the housing was about three years undersupplied. And uh, we also have a situation where there was a brand new wet behind the ears Fed, which raised rates roughly at the same pace as uh, what this most recent federal rate hike was. Um, although the you know overall financial markets behaved differently at that point and mortgages were different. But what we saw happen was they pushed the economy, they were tightened, so they pushed the economy into outright deflation. There was, you know, they called it the forgotten depression. It was a really bad mistake, unless you were exposed to housing. Housing did really good. So housing declined at the worst of it, about 20% starts wise year over year. We have this data in our report. Uh, and then the following year, once the Fed eased a little bit, uh, we saw housing jump right back up. And it was one of the most, if you had to be exposed to one part of the economy, you'd want to be exposed to housing. So uh, obviously that's not the same. There's so many things that are different between today and then, but we think the, the underlying nugget that gets ignored by just looking at the 70s and 80s is that in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have this underbuilding situation, which people perceive today and was the case 100 years ago. And it really made housing a special part of the economy. Yeah, that that's interesting. So that, that so that time period is, is um, there's some parallels in your mind to today. Um, what, in terms of uh, interest rates today, like what effect, obviously we know the effect on affordability and so forth, but how about in terms of mobility or this interest rate lock-in effect? What, is, what does that do for new construction? So I, I'm actually a little bit contrarian on this on this point. Um, we've done a whole lot of research around the effect towards mobility. And you know the, the, the context that everyone should be thinking is that mobility has been declining uh, almost by half since the mid to late 80s. People move half as often today as they did you know, then, even since the late 90s. Uh, people have just been moving less often in general. And so obviously the the, you know, the incremental effect that, that a raise in interest rates has is that uh, those who have a mortgage that's 200 basis points or below, and there's a whole, whole bunch of you know science behind this number, but essentially we the math should be that they move about half as often as they did if rates were lower. Um, however, however, uh, what's special about right now is that we have people who, even if they're locked into their home, have extra home equity that has grown since they moved into their home that they can roll forward on the next purchase or the next remodel. And so our, our general sense is that uh, we have right now today already taken the write down on how much mobility should have weakened because of rates being higher, but we still retain all the extra home equity that they can roll forward. And yeah. so um, that comment that I mentioned about the, the postponed moves, the data from the New York Fed, if you were to reverse engineer, you know, the percentage of people that were planning on moving in the next two years or so and look at the mobility rate, they almost tie exactly. Uh, makes sense because people who are planning on moving ultimately move. If we take that data from the New York Fed and reverse engineer like what it would mean for future moves for, for mobility, uh, we think that you should be seeing a number maybe like what we saw in the early 2000s, which is not a you know unusually high number, but would imply like existing home sales in the ballpark of like 8 million. That's if rates came back down. So that's, that's that beach ball that I mentioned. Um, so we should expect mobility to be higher. If they can't find a match, they will have to buy a new home or they'll have to remodel. And both those categories are really special yeah. for building products versus just finding another good kind of mediocre existing home. Yeah. Um, wow, there's, there's a lot of questions I want to dive into. So for 2024, you're seeing, um, you, you think single family, there's some upside if, if, if uh, upside to your plus number, plus 3% starts for building product manufacturers if interest rates drop. And you think the, um, on the revenue side, it'll be obviously a richer mix of single family to multifamily because we're going to see we're going to get to multifamily in just a minute, but there's some, there's some reasons to be positive if you're a building products manufacturer, at least going into the first half of 24 with respect to uh, new construction. Is well, accurate. It, yeah. I, I, th I think what, what the, what the industry needs to really, now I would encourage everyone listening to this call, do the math yourself. What number do you really believe is the number for over or under supply? I've seen numbers as large as, you know, 6 million. I don't think that's correct. I've seen numbers that are more in like the million and a half to two million range. That smells more correct to me. Uh, and 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 what's really special about that, if you believe that that's the case, 
then it means that all your underlying backdrop about how much of those, you know, future future transactions are have to be interest rate finance are different too. So uh, we we think that there's uh, on the new side, that's evidence of the underlying story within housing, which is happens to be a part that's good for building product manufacturers. Yeah, is with new constructions, new home sales, you know, such a high per historically high percentage now of all sales, I think in the mid 30 to 35% normally in what, 10 to 15, 12 to 15, like it can't stay there. It can't like it has to, at some point unwind and regress to mean, I would think. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or is that, that just indicative of good thing, you know, positive tailwinds that are, that are happening? Well, I think you'll find a really different answer if you're asking if it's a good thing for builders or if it's a good thing for building product manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So if we were to see, let's say that scenario where mobility happened, where we saw rates, let's just, you know, extend this experiment out. So rates come back down. They, they're in the sixes right now. Maybe they come down to six and a half this next year, or maybe even lower. Uh, if that were to be the case, we, we essentially would see an unlocking of people in their homes now searching to find new matches among other homes. Yeah, uh, We would see existing home sales increase. And uh, the chances that they found the perfect home among existing home sales is not ideal. So they still would have to spend some home, home improvement dollars. Or if they don't move, they're still going to have to remodel or they're going to have to buy something that's new. But I think what we see is uh, building products gains upside. Uh, whether or not the builders capture the same percentage of the overall housing market or not. And that's that's yeah, an important yeah. nugget. And perhaps there's a different discussion around kind of in the value chain, how much margin goes where. Um, the channel players, the, the, the amount of power that is concentrated among the channel players today is very different than it was in 2005. We remember some of the builders being able to push their weight around pretty strongly demanding the channels kind of bend to their whims. Um, we're seeing if remodeling grows, who gains the pro contractor will be the one we believe the one who commands, you know, market share changes between some of the brands, perhaps, you know, pretty big differences between margins. That's the piece to watch, we think. So uh, actually, and this is going to sound extreme, but um, you know, if if that math is correct, we we could be seeing a situation where, uh, across many, many, many asset classes, if you think about it from an investment perspective, that you, you know, United States building products becomes one of the categories that has, on a risk-adjusted basis, one of the most upside for like unit of volatility. Hmm. I like that proposition. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, one last question. We'll go to multifamily. Just a bit of a side question, but I saw it in some of your writings. Um, days of supply of 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 homes on the market. Is that, are we at a different spot now due to technology or are we at a different spot now? And is it due to technology? That's what you had, you'd, I'd seen a statement yeah. somewhere, but I wanted to explore that a little bit with you. Here's, what, here's what, I mean, so this is an opinion question, but here's what, here's what I, what I think we generally believe. And I think it's supported. Um, so if you think about how you purchased most other goods in the past, like we, we have no longer require the same amount of supply in order to find a match. The market's just getting more efficient in general. There's you know various portals and services that we can find something online much more efficiently. So the industry always kind of had this thumb rule of for the existing home market, six and a half months supply being like yeah. equilibrium. And if it was below that, you'd see home price appreciation. If it was above that, you'd see home price depreciation. Um, our sense is that it, it, it might be half that. So maybe two and a half months to three months. That could be equilibrium in a, in a market that's just operating more efficiently. So if that's the case, that really gives us a new lens coming into 2024 because we're right at about at that same point of that much supply. So, so we're at exciting times from a supply demand standpoint. Interesting. Yeah, because we lived for a long time at six, six and a half. Now we've been living a long time below that. But yeah, it's interesting to think about that. Um, let, let's switch to multifamily if we could. Um, I know most folks are looking at softness in the multifamily segment uh, over the next year or two. Um, what are you seeing in multifamily and why would, as a build, well, let's put from a building products manufacturer perspective, what do you think we can expect? Let's start there for next year. So, Building product manufacturers will be surprised at how good their book of business is in the first half of 2024, and they'll hear of tales of carnage among the, <laughs> the multifamily operators. And what I would encourage them to do is not not be complacent. Don't assume that they're gaining share. 
Uh, ba basically, what's happening is we have record numbers of multifamily apartments that are being built right now that will come to market around the middle of 2024. And the, the, the nuance of being built right now and coming to market in 2024 means building product companies are getting revenue from it right now because the work's being installed and being built. That's happening right now. So that's good. Uh, the, 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 the hairy part is that by mid-2024, we're going to find out whether or not a lot of the underlying you know, pro forma assumptions from some of these multifamily investments uh, will turn out to be anywhere near what they thought. So will the the you know the the lease up rates, the rent rates be anywhere near what they expected when you have a market that's flooded with new units? I actually, you know, uh, I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that if you're in building products, the most underrated number that you can watch coming into 2024 that you, you has not been on your scorecard but probably should be in 2024 is what happens with multifamily rents. Because if multifamily rents collapse, then we're going to see a pullback in the capital that goes to multifamily construction in late 2024, 2025. And you could see, you know, we, we've had some, we have a whole multifamily advisory practice. And I interviewed that principal for a lot of our clients. And she had made the case that even multifamily starts could be like minus 50, five, 0% in 2024. That would be all second half loaded. It would look really volatile and then bounce back again. That's all driven by the capital. Uh, if on the other hand, multifamily and apartment rents hold up okay, and even like just give a little bit of ground, but they don't collapse. That could be a signal that this underbuilding situation that we talked about, that the overall you know level of household formation is sufficient to support even record you know record number of supply coming on the market. And that's a really nice story to have. It would lower it would maybe lower the overall clearing price from incremental units of housing, but it's really good for building products. And it's very bullish in the in, in the long run. So, yeah. um, watch that number. Even if you haven't watched that number in the past, it it, it could be a pretty exciting you know apartment rent uh, number to watch. Multifamily rents, yeah. Now, when you say minus fifty percent, let me just are you talking about the run rate in the second half? You're not talking about total number of starts. So, our official multifamily starts forecast for next year is minus twenty five percent. I can tell you in our building products forecast, we handicapped that a fuzz lower. We kind of assumed minus 35% in our model. And a lot of that was just questions around um, uh, which way we thought the risk was. Um, but that was, would have been an annual number, not a run rate number. And so, you know, yeah. the, the thing is, is that our, our, our apartment team has pretty good visibility into the next wave of capital. So if they're working on a deal, it won't come to market for, you know, for several years, or at least we have a really good visibility on when it could turn into a start. And there's a whole lot of risk there around if you don't, if you have, you know, financing costs, which you have an idea of where they'll be, but they're higher, but you don't know if you can fill up the unit and if you can get the rents that you expect, uh, you really need to see that data, you know, the rubber meet, meet the road before you're you're ready to go up the next run. And there's just, it takes time. So we're, we're going to see a volatile multifamily number next year. Uh, whether and how, how volatile will, will be a really good indication of how strong the overall bounce is. If rents come in better than what people think, it's bullish for builders, it's bullish for remodeling, it's bullish for every other part of the market. Um, so I think we it's something that we need to watch pretty close. Yeah. And today, so going into 24, there's a huge backlog of uncompleted, or started but not yet completed multifamily projects, right, units. Give us a historical perspective. Where, When have we seen this before? We've only seen this level of backlog once in the history of the data. And it was in 1973. And what was really special about that time in 1973, and, and it wasn't, wasn't much different than it is today, uh, that when that happened, we saw the overall capture rate of building product manufacturer dollars as a percentage of the overall construction ecosystem grow. They gained about 200 basis points of kind of the overall the overall ecosystem. And what's funny is that they held it despite rising rates and you know over underlying mortgages in the late 70s and early 80s, despite slowdowns in you know in starts at that point and deferred home improvement projects five years later, uh, we saw that increase in margin among that kind of broader ecosystem hold itself for about 10 years. So um, you know, when I take a step back and I look at what's happening right now within kind of housing and building products, we have the same feeling where you've got more of these units, you know, under construction, not yet delivered. You could see really volatile numbers for starts. But as we kind of said before, when you're there's a question mark around how much product can we bring to bear? How much pro labor can we bring to bear? 
we could see a situation where I think the strike price of how much reward building product manufacturers get to like manufacture and deliver product on time and the right type of product for, you know, for the housing market in general, it's actually a pretty nice backdrop. Some will lose share, some will lose margin, and it's going to be the parts of the market that have a lot of exposure to that DIY middle income credit field pull forward, yeah. Uh, yeah. or who are 100% isolated, focused on apartment construction. That could be a tough year. For the rest of the market, it's a really nice pricing backdrop. So yeah, it's a, it's a nice point we share with our clients. Yeah. And just to put some numbers to it. So um, in terms of units not completed, we're somewhere around a, close to a million, approaching a million maybe. And historical uh, multifamily is 400,000 plus or minus. Is that exactly scale? right? Yeah. 2X, 2X beyond uh, yeah. what should have been normal. Part of that's due to the elongated build cycle and other issues, just what happens with rents. Uh, but uh, it, the, the, the idea of having a million units under construction, multifamily property at all, much less, yeah. we don't talk about a million starts for multifamily property. We're talking about a million units under construction right now today. That's really unusual. Uh, it's a, it's a not quite an all-time high, but it's as close to an all-time high as you can get going back, you know, almost 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Long time. Great. Well, let's, let's finish up here with single family uh, for rent. What, where are we in the single family for rent um, market? Uh, my understanding is um, money is not necessarily flowing into that segment. It's slowed. People are taking a pause, catching their breath. Interest rate driven. Is it a matter of trading off risk? What uh, What do you see in the SFR? So we have a whole published research team that focuses around single family. And obviously all these things are usually very hyper local because you know, the, 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 the sure. market comps and they're compared, right. But let me talk about a few things that uh, I worry about. And I think about when it comes to single family rent for building products. So there's two stories happening. One story is you have, you know, single family rental is not new. Single family rental has been, you know, around for decades and decades and decades. And in certain markets, you know, even before the financial crisis, we saw certain markets say in the Midwest, where there might be 30% of units were single family rental owned. And usually that was like mom and pop investors. What's shifting now, and this has been shifting, say, since Invitation Homes really hit the market in, you know, about 10 years ago, is the institutionalization of single family rental. And uh, not to call specific numbers on this too, too finely, but if we look at multifamily, uh, institutional ownership of multifamily is roughly 15%. Single family is roughly, you know, two to 3%. So we're probably fairly early in the institutional ownership of single family rental. Now that, that I'm still pretty positive on. We think that there's a whole, you know, efficiency reason to be believed that we will slowly see this conversion of, you know, mom and pops, less mom and pops and more institutional ownership, just because there's economies of scale due to technology today that didn't exist before. Okay. That's one story. The, the other story that does concern me has to do with, um, I keep worrying about a paper that I read pretty recently from the uh, the Philadelphia Fed around investors in housing, which a lot of these tend to be single family, like mom and pop investors. And the story is this. Uh, so a small investor with a reasonably good credit score takes out a mortgage and they claim that they're going to be the owner occupant, that they're going to move to that property. But they never move. And the, the, the reason that they, they claim that they're going to be owner-occupied in that property, but they never move, is because they get a slightly better mortgage rate. And then they lease it up. And then someone stays in that home, and they get the home price appreciation. Uh, and maybe they do this several times. So according to the Philadelphia Fed, they did some really granular work. Uh, the amount of fraudulent owner-occupied fraud investors is roughly 30% of the universe of investor homes occupied right now. That's a huge number, huge number. And again, none of, none of that, because it's it's owner-occupied, none of that is going to be institutional, institutional dollars. That's all going to be small mom and pops. Yeah. But the reason that I, I care about that, and I think the industry should think about that, is because, you know, according to the data, that is the group who is 75% more likely to default. You know, we call it strategic defaults. They can pay the mortgage, they can pay the note, but because the home value goes in the red, uh, maybe they walk away. That that is not that is not underwritten in anyone's forecast right now. And so I, I don't believe right now in our forecast, we don't believe that we're going to see this you know sea change of monster wave of defaults and this whole wave of incremental distress. And if we did, 
because of kind of where institutional ownership is at right now, we think there's a lot of dry powder that would ultimately buy up those incremental units. But at the margin, it does mean that there is going to be specific markets in certain, you know, parts of the parts of the country where we could see a much more volatile first half of 2024 if home prices began to wiggle a little bit. And and it means that uh your your CNBC, you know, Yahoo Finance scare box of uh, various headlines that show really, really scary things um, could could be higher in the first yeah, half yeah. of 2024 than it was in the first half of 2023 if we do see the strategic default. So just have that on your radar. Yeah, something another something interesting to think about. Thanks for that. Um, let's close here, Todd. Anything that we haven't talked about? We, we've been around the horn here. Remodel, different segments and new construction. Any closing thoughts from your from your perspective? I think that overall building products, you know, volatility is a big opportunity. So we're going to be going to the builder show in, in about six weeks or so. Uh, I think we're going to see a really interesting thing to develop where there's going to be a whole lot of uncertainty, a lot of worry about, you know, DIY and remodeling slowing really, really rapidly. We're going to be seeing the apartment market and some of these other credit issues begin to unwind and there's going to be a lot of fear, but industry participants should remember um, that 1918 to 1923 story of just the underlying, what happened the last time we actually saw underbuilding was uh, if you had to be exposed to one part of the market, housing was that part of the market. And we think what's happening for home improvement and overall housing standpoint is the strength that you saw in single family starts, strength that you saw from the builders is basically a reflection of the long-term underlying story of holding a beach ball underwater that's just beginning to, to digest. So uh, stay the course see through it, just be aware of what parts of your business have the most exposure to the risk. Yeah, great. No, great way to leave it here. So uh, we'll we'll close it here. Todd, I can't thank you enough for your time and your insights. Um, always wonderful to talk to you and hear you and and, and understand what you're thinking about because it's, it's really insightful stuff and thoughtful stuff. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Alan. Great fun. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.